Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let us begin our market coverage again. Jane Foley to join us on our next hour. Tony Dwyer uh, with us now. But right now from Edinburgh, Jerry Fowler is with Aberdeen with a distinguished career in derivative analysis, which is the nuances of the asset markets. Uh, Jerry, wonderful to have you with us uh, today. What is the distinction you see from the derivative markets as they explain what's going on in the core equity market? Well, I don't think in this particular case, like in examples in the past, like 2006, the derivatives <laughs> markets are having a huge impact. Uh, you know, there probably are days when there's significant amounts of gamma selling with the volatility uh, so elevated. But this is uh, much more of an interest rate type environment. Uh, you know, what we're thinking has been driving this is a, a myriad of geopolitical factors, whether it's China weakness or Italian crisis. Uh, but really, <clears throat> I think the key driver that's most important at the moment is the LIBOR rate. Because even though the Fed right. has hiked four times this year, the LIBOR rate has actually been flat for six months and now has started rising again. And so the world is adjusting <clears throat> to a risk-free rate that is going up. I'm so glad you bring this up. Our Michael McKee pointed it out to me yesterday. Jerry, Jerry, you're the head of the CFA Society for United Kingdom. That's pretty smart. For our audience that's less gifted, explain the importance of LIBOR in its statement of liquidity to pros. Well, LIBOR uh, is one measure of liquidity. There are others like cross-currency basis. But the reason LIBOR is so important is because it's, it, it is really what drives all loan rates around the world. And so we could be talking about levered loan rates, which are based off uh, LIBOR. You could be talking about all swaps, which are based off LIBOR payments. So the Fed funds rate is only a guide to where markets will price, but actually LIBOR can have a spread. And the reason LIBOR is so important in particular is because it's the global risk-free rate. It's set by London interbanks. Uh, and uh, while there is going to be a transition to new uh, systems in the future, essentially it is the price at which dollars are priced outside of the U.S. So at the beginning of the year, with lots of dollar repatriation, the price of dollars outside <coughs> the U.S. had to go up. So you had a LIBOR spike versus the Fed funds rates, or OIS. Uh, and yeah. what that meant was... Um, you essentially got two interest rate hikes in that first quarter, whereas the Fed only did one. But since we've had effectively no rate hikes uh, from the U.S. that have actually mattered to markets for six months, which has been a nice reprieve from you know what has been a volatile year, what we're seeing now is those rate hikes from the Fed and that trajectory being priced into global interest rate markets again, and the markets having to adjust to this new yield environment and this tighter liquidity. Uh, but cross-currency basis is another thing that matters in the fourth quarter because global banks need dollar yep. liquidity over year end. So the combination of rising LIBOR and cross-currency basis is putting a floor under the dollar. Jerry, it's Naira in London. Great to see you. And Edinburgh uh, takes my breath away, as always, on this beautiful day <laughs> over there. Uh, if this torrid, torrid October that we've seen for global equities, uh, the worst in almost six years, is down to the world adjusting to the risk-free rate gro uh, going up, tightening liquidity, why is it that you're still pro-risk? Because this is a new paradigm that we're having to get used to. Yes, we're pro-risk because even though we do see a cyclical slowdown coming, U.S. growth is rolling over, the rest of the world has already been weak most of the year, we do see it as only a slowdown that generally market prices have already factored in. 
non-US asset prices, uh, particularly equities, are far cheaper than US equity valuations, uh, particularly versus their own domestic bond markets. And so, and also, especially recently, our uh, shorter-term technical indicators are suggesting markets are really quite heavily oversold. So there is opportunity to be taking tactical risk. And in addition to that, LIBOR will matter for the overall level of yields across markets, but it will only cause a problem and genuine financial stress when it, when it is high enough to impact credit. Uh, now, I heard Tom talking about the high yield market, which has started to see credit spread expansion right. that is beyond <clears throat> the investment grade uh, um, spread expansion. But the one I'd really point to is the levered loan index, because Yellen's been talking about it. We've been looking at it for uh, a good part of the last six months. Uh, but there is quite a lot of froth and weakening of covenants in the levered loan market, which is now very, very large. And what I'm watching carefully for is when those levered loan yields spike away from LIBOR, because then you're comparing apples with apples without getting into duration, and you're just seeing whether yeah. there is genuine loan stress in the economy. And at the moment, that's not the case, in, in which case we think that essentially there will be enough economic momentum to sustain some earnings growth. All right. So levered loans not causing you too much concern yet, Jerry. But let me ask you this question. We've been asking our guests all morning and you'll have a great view on it with your multi-asset view. What scares you most in markets at the moment? Good question for Halloween. <laughs> Good question. Uh, in the very short term, uh, we are most concerned about the continued escalation of trade. Uh, and trade wars with China. But it actually goes beyond a concern about trade and more the strategic confrontation. So I know we've all been analysing that to death and a decent amount of that is in the price, particularly for Chinese assets. Uh, in the medium term, it is the Fed rate hiking path because even as the world adjusts to this new level of interest rate and the tightening of dollar liquidity and the, the level of the dollar and the weakening of growth, all of which we think <coughs> the market has done a pretty good job of, at the moment, the Fed funds futures are not pricing the rate hiking path that the Fed are promising to deliver. And so someone will need to be right. Uh, either the Fed will need to pause to allow uh, you know, the, the credit cycle to um, to smoothly flow through without right. creating an enormous amount of stress, or they'll, or they'll overdo well, it. We're going to get credit stress, and we'll have a credit, you know, what I might call a credit recession. Right. So it's that it, that's the problem I would see potentially on a six to twelve month horizon if the Fed does yeah. keep hiking rates every quarter. Jerry, thank you so much. Jerry Fowler with us with Aberdeen, brilliant there on LIBOR. We'll try to get that out on our podcast as well uh, today. This from Rabobank in London, Jane uh, Foley. Uh, there's some headlines out of China, which I think are, are really, really important. Now, here's one just separate. Uh, President Xi stresses importance of AI development, artificial intelligence development. But earlier, Jane Foley, we really began to see the kind of economic talk out of the Politburo. I'm searching for those headlines right now. But an hour and a half ago, China just simply came out and said economic growth looks a little shaky. Jane, do we see that in Yuan? Do we, do we see a linkage of China economic growth with their managed currency? 
I think we do. Well, certainly uh, the market has been talking about a push higher in, in dollar renminbi for some time, and we've seen a lot of stimulus from, from China in recent weeks, and that, of course, is consistent with the slowing growth. Officially, uh, the GDP data that they published a couple of weeks ago was, was slower, uh, and we're seeing slower uh, signs of growth and, and an awful yeah. lot of other indications too, such as the PMI data and then unofficial <clears throat> data too, yeah. such as air freight, for instance. So there is, without doubt, signs that... China right. is slowing. And when you have a, a, a central bank that is stimulating, then it's natural for a, a currency to weaken. But, of course, this is a very political exchange rate. And, and whilst there is some pressure, and there has been pressure on the remember to weaken against the U.S. dollar, and, of course, the dollar has been strong against almost every other currency uh, since around about February or March, the, the Chinese are very, very concerned about right. the political implications, and they have today been uh, taking some measures to try and stabilize renminbi, to try and signal that they don't want it to fall yeah. too fast. John, the, the, the headline about 6.10 a.m., China Politburo says timely steps needed to counter slowdown. Yeah, I mean, have you seen the data? China manufacturing slipping, the export sub-index at a PMI overnight, the lowest since 2016, non-manufacturing PMI Is that the trade war? also I don't below know. estimates. I mean, the export sub-index would point towards the trade war, but the manufacturing numbers just aren't great, and we're just about in expansion territory. And Jane, I think you've touched on something important. I would have thought off the back of that data, that might be enough to take us over the line. Seven on Dolly Yuan. Is seven the line in the sand for the Chinese authorities? Are they trying to stand there and stop it from crossing that, and why? Well, I think why is because I think they fear that it's perhaps a line in the sand for the U.S. president. And, and certainly we've had a lot of rhetoric um, over the last couple of years with respect to China from from the U.S. Now, they haven't, of course, officially accused it of, of being a manipulator, but clearly Trump is concerned about the strong dollar. Clearly he's concerned about uh, trade wars. Clearly uh, the U.S. is winning the trade war in terms that the U.S. is still growing, uh, China is slowing, and, of course, the U.S. It, trade is less important to the U.S. than it is to China. Exports to GDP in the U.S. are only around about 10% or so. So the U.S. are always going to have a, a stronger hand in, in this trade war. So China is slowing, um, and I think the Chinese authorities are fearful that if we saw a significant move or perhaps a fast move above that seven level, then it might increase the, the, the rhetoric from the U.S. against China. Kit Jukes of Solgen picked up on something I think is quite important, Jane. I'd love your insight on it. We've got some key levels on some key currency pairs. Dollar China near seven, euro dollar with a 113 handle, cable trading around 127. And Kit's point is that essentially we can pick out different narratives to explain what's happening with different currency pairs. But there is one key consistent here, Jane, and it's the stronger dollar story. And I'm just wondering how much is left in that stronger dollar story from your perspective, from your vantage point. Well, our target for a while now has been 112. And I think the, the question is now is, are actually we going to drop below 112? Because when we first put 112 in, into the picture some, some months ago, this was all about the, the stronger dollar story. But I think actually in, in recent weeks, we've seen some other stories emerge. So, for instance, in the Eurozone, I think we've seen a deterioration of the political backdrop there, but also of the, the growth data. The, some of the, the, the numbers coming through from Europe have been 
softer. So I think we've had a, a worsening story there. And of course, if you look at the UK, clearly there's, yeah. there's Brexit. And, yeah. and there are concerns that even if a deal is done, it may not be ratified by Parliament. So a number of forecasters, including ourselves, are increasing the, the percentage that we're uh, attributing to a no-deal Brexit. So there are a number mm. of other uh, factors here which are emerging, which are going side by side uh, with right. the story of strong US growth and, and really fueling that dollar rally. Now, Jane Foley, thank you so much with uh, Rabobank today. Greatly appreciate that. On Facebook, and it was a joy to have him with us today at the initial public offering, David Kirkpatrick. As many know, I made my uh, book of the summer, book of the year, whatever, way back, The Facebook Effect. The inside story of David Kirkpatrick covering Facebook for a zillion years. And David, there's a sentence right now. I had only been marginally aware of Facebook until a public relations person called me in the late summer of 2006 and asked if I would meet with Mark Zuckerberg. How is Mr. Zuckerberg different today, David Kirkpatrick, than when you wrote that sentence in your classic book? Steve, Tom, that's a scary question. I, I wish I understood his brain well enough to answer that. He's not a kid anymore. He is a one of the richest people in the world, the richest person of his age yeah. in human history. So I think that has changed him profoundly. And he is, he you know, at the time he was generously at head this attitude was sort of <clears throat> I'm giving this thing to the world because yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. cool. We are course, the world. He da, is da, now da. defending his his wealth by any means okay. possible. Okay. Is he an executive? You're the one guy I trust on this question. Is is he an executive and are there any adults around him helping? Not really. Unfortunately, I I don't I, I yeah, of course, literally, he is an executive. He is decently, you know, he, he has hired Sheryl Sandberg. Sheryl Sandberg has created this massive machine of profit, uh, which is shifting in some interesting ways now. Even it's, it's causing tremendous social harm. But I, I don't think he has people around him who, who are anything but basically yes men in the end. I think that... That's how we are with John Farrell. I mean, I understand that. <laughs> I mean, you know, this whole thing with hiring uh, the, the deputy prime minister of the U.K. is an interesting recent development where clearly they want people around him who can give him tough messaging if necessary. But I have very little reason to think that a relatively, you know, weak politician who didn't right. do that well in government is going to come in and have a lot of sway with Zuckerberg. Mm. So he doesn't like to re really have people around him that fundamentally disagree with him. Yeah. He's happy to entertain uh, disagreeing, just d disagreements from a moment-to-moment -moment basis, but he has his ideas and he will stick to them. And he does not think that these issues of social harm are really that important in the end. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that statement about the former Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg. He's hardly the guy that's going to walk into the boardroom and start bullying everyone and telling them what to do. Um, so it's not exactly the strong-minded person that maybe needs to be filling that position. The stock, though, David, let's talk about that. And the pre-market is up by just a little bit more than 5%. What did we learn from the earnings, not about the last quarter, but the guidance for 2019 in the last 24 hours? Well, certainly we learned a few things. I think we learned that 
their expenses are going to keep going up to try to throw money at this problem of social harm and disinformation and, and privacy violations, as they predicted in the last quarter. And that's real. We also learned that their growth really is slowing or has slowed or maybe stopped in the developed world like the United States and, e and the EU. Um, we learned that their news feed, this is probably the most interesting thing, I think, from a business point of view that came out of yesterday's uh, announcements and earnings call. You know, the news feed may not be the future of Facebook and this stories thing, which is really much more of interest to young people than mature adults and which frankly, I think is not something they've even figured out properly how to, quote-unquote, monetize, is to some extent, in their opinion, their future, along with WhatsApp and Instant Messenger and Instagram. Um, I think it, it, it basically points to a business that is kind of in a major transition, even as they haven't really figured out how to address the issues of social harm. So do you think that the Instagram platform essentially is just going to start cannibalizing the core platform? It, it is. It is doing that now um, for young people. There's no question. Uh, in the United States and I think in Europe and developed countries, it has been doing that for some time. Uh, you know, I think we see that anecdotally. We're seeing it in the numbers. Um, but the problem, interestingly, you know, I keep going back to these issues of disinformation, social harm, and Facebook's moral responsibility to address these things, because I think those are real, real challenges they face that they can't really own up to. And Instagram is now a, a source of tremendous disinformation. There have been a, several articles in the last several days about anti-Semitic speech on Instagram that's gone unregulated, uh, people who've been kicked off yeah. Facebook who found a haven on Instagram. Um, th that's worrisome. Okay, but w within this is the shift from fake. I mean, as a summary, David, everybody John and I know is getting off Facebook. Okay, and every kid we see is glued to Instagram stories and all uh, the rest of it as well. How do you make money on Instagram like they have proven on Facebook? Well, I don't see it. Educate I, me. I actually think Instagram is a very good profit center potential. I mean, they say How? The, estimate, the estimates are from the outsiders, since they don't really give us these numbers, that Instagram right. is going to make about $9 billion in ad revenue this year. That's pretty darn good. Okay, but look, my 11-year-old afterthought is going as Lindsey Graham for Halloween. Okay, fine. She's going, well, from, her. Her. She's going as a senator from South Carolina. Her, sorry. Now, what do I want to know, David? <laughs> Wait a second. Is she is they glued... She is glued to Instagram. Right. She's not going to use Instagram with a bunch of ads in her face. Well, actually, I don't know if that's so true. People are very accepting of ads on Instagram at the moment. I think the question is okay. more this issue of stories, which are yeah, you know, a huge stories. format on Instagram. And Seriously. you know, if you're putting together a little mini video slideshow yeah. for your friends that's ephemeral, First of all, it's ephemeral. Second of all, you know, how many ads are you really going to tolerate within that? I, I think within the feed of Instagram, ads work fairly well. Uh, but I don't okay. know that they'll work in stories Agreed. as well. Francine LaCroix's stories to great effect. Should I do stories, David Kirkpatrick? I don't think so. I don't do them. Me and Vet Bill on a walk? Can, you're not getting away from this. Your youngest is going to Halloween as... Senator Graham. Senator Graham from South Carolina. Why? Social studies. She t they're in social studies and they're doing the midterm elections. I'm glad she's and, educated enough. You know, they're doing, you know, she came in and says, who do you think the new cabinet members will be? And so, I so mentioned everyone, Senator Graham. So everyone has picked a senator. Every, no, some are going as House people and, you know, 
judges, someone's going as Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh. You know, I mean, you know, that's what they're doing. It's a great thing. It's a whole social studies thing. You are on your own for the next two minutes of this program. No, I mean, it's you are serious. on your own, David. I want to get back to Facebook. Maybe somebody's going as That's Mark Zuckerberg as well. I, I want to get back to the executives, the executives of Facebook. Yeah, what and, about and, and well, what about them? I mean, I mean, John well, Scully look, came in, and that didn't work out at Apple, right? I mean, well, they, they could use somebody. Well, that's true, but you know. They they could use a Satya Nadella is what they could use. They need a mature exec. And here's an interesting thing, in my opinion. They actually have such a person inside in David Marcus, who is probably, by some measures, their most experienced and most you know <clears throat> capable business leader in the entire company. Okay. Who is the one that took Facebook mess after they hired him from being CEO of PayPal? He took Facebook Messenger from 300 million to 1.2 billion, and then yeah. they mysteriously pulled him off to put him on this quote-unquote blockchain project, which I think is intriguing because they obviously are worried that somebody's going to come up with a blockchain-based alternative to Facebook or something, and they also want to figure out how to deal with cryptocurrencies okay. inside Facebook. But he could be CEO, actually. Okay. But, you know, even if he wasn't CEO, Zuckerberg's not going to give up anything. We know he doesn't have to. He has got to be have more humility than he has. Okay. You know, you know what, Dave? We're going to run out of time, but this is brilliant. We're going to get you back on shortly again on Facebook. David Kirkpatrick, author of The Facebook Effect. And, folks, this interview will be on our podcast today, out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You, you're laughing at me. I am, yeah. They, did, they took the class. And they said hey, half keep, are going to be Democrats, half are going to be Republicans. Keep digging. I'm having a great time listening to it. Carry on. Tell no, me all it's about great. It. I, I think it's a great social studies exercise. I agree. For a I bunch think it's kids. fantastic. I think you it's know, great. They're doing different Halloween costumes. I think it's fantastic. The tallest kid in the class is going as Justice Ginsburg. That's not a bad thing. Let's get started. Troy Gajewski with us, the chemical engineer from MIT. He is with Skybridge, uh, where he looks at the alternative investment space and other event-driven arbitrage strategies. I have no idea what that is. Troy, uh, the hedge fund business, how have they done with the momentary volatility of February and October? What has that done to returns? Yeah, so it depends on the strategy time. As usual, we would say that um, the strategies that are getting hit the hardest uh, would, first of all, be the systematic trend followers. That just like January, um, after the strong December, January, were basically max long equities yeah. and then got bludgeoned in that sell off and were one of the causal events of it, along with uh, you know risk parity managers um, that were forced yeah. to sell as, as their models tripped. Same exact uh, path here in that you had strong. Market price action in August, September, you know, markets started to sell off because of fears of higher interest rates right. and perhaps, you know, margin, a margin compression due to the trade war and boom, 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 boom. So they're, they're having horrific months. Um, fundamental long short equity managers are also getting hit probably as hard as they did in January and February of 16, okay. where, where they're deleveraging. Yeah. But on the positive side, you know, managers focus on structured credit. Or, you know, the credit of financial service companies are doing well. Right. Because okay. those, those markets have held in. Okay. You know, their long positions have held in because the fundamentals are strong. Right. 
Uh, their hedges are principally in high yield, which, as you guys just alluded to, is marginally down in the month. So that's a positive contributor. And their rate hedges are, are making a little bit of money as well. Okay. So, you yeah, know, okay. what we've seen th this month is differentiation between a fundamentally okay. sound assets and those that are less so. Troy, I want to get to this. This is really important. I think the way the media reports hedge funds is terrible. We make it sound like they're all making a gazillion billion dollars as we focus on one hedge fund that's hit the ball out of the park. There was, was Who was the guy in London, John Farrell, that did Crispin Odeon or something? He did so well. I, I can't remember his name. Crispin Odie hasn't been Odie, doing so yeah. well over yeah, the last few recently, years. Yeah, but recently, the last few years, it's blown back. up. How? What percentage of hedge funds, Troy Gajewski, right now are quote-unquote underperforming? Underperforming? Yeah. Well, it depends on the benchmark you use, but prior to this month, we'd probably say maybe 20 to 25%. After this month, it's probably more like half, because okay. the, remember, the vast okay. bulk of assets are in long-short equity and macro strategies, which is where you've okay. had the worst performance this month. I just want to get that out, that half the funds are really struggling. Yeah, okay. Troy, if we take stock of the month, um, I mm. think this is pretty interesting, and Jeff Gunlack was out on Twitter pointing us to it as well. The 30-year Treasury yield opened the month at 320. Now, if I told you at the start of the month that the equity market was going to be down 8, 9, perhaps even 10%, I don't think you would have guessed that we closed the month at 338, would you? Yeah, well, it depends. Remember, I mean, this this market sell-off, right, was partially driven from a fundamental standpoint by rates going higher, right? So we have this upward bias towards towards rates, particularly at the back end of the curve after flattening for most of the year. And only the last week or so of the sell-off did you get the classic bull flattening behavior that you, you uh, typically see. So, so that actually doesn't surprise us that much. In, in, when you're in an environment of inflation expectations rising, the yeah. Fed tightening policy, and rates going higher, um, you did end up the last week or so with more bull flattening behavior, but now we're back to uh, some steepening as you see the past few days. But Troy, this is why I asked the question, because if you put in together that classic fixed income portfolio, you want yep. to be barbelled and have things like treasuries respond to things like credit when credit goes south. Are we going to have mm -hmm. that this time around? Well, again, that, that's one of the challenges for systematic strategies like risk parity, right, that are based on the fact that when equities sell off, bonds do well and vice versa, right? When, when you're in a very different market regime like we've really been since the Trump election victory, um, those strategies don't pay, behave as well, right? There are periods of time like earlier this year or, or October where you're getting hit on both sides of your exposures, both your long fixed income and your long uh, equity exposure, which is one of the reasons why, you know, certain niche hedge fund strategies can add value. You. Um, but looking forward, I mean, is there any doubt that rates are going to marginally go higher, at least in the front end? You know, the back end should march higher as well. And as you guys know, equity multiples have compressed yeah. significantly into tighter monetary policy. So we expect right. continued challenges in, in long fixed income, you know, Kwong equities, classic 60-40 uh, allocations. And now, as we always do with Troy Gajewski, we go to Newtonian mechanics and the miracle <laughs> of chemistry with a chemical we, engineer we. of the Massachusetts Institute now, of Technology. I, I, I don't do that. You okay, do that. Troy, there's potential energy and there's kinetic energy. It has been mm -hmm. a, a wonderful kinetic energy from 2009, and there's been bouts here or there. What no one's talking about is we go to some lethargy, some malaise, not vector up, which gets everybody fired up, or vector down. What's the likelihood of trading range forward, which John Farrell, I would suggest nobody ever predicts. Nobody ever gets that right. Troy? 
Yeah, well, look, that's a reasonable outcome. That, that being said, although, you know, if you think about how much multiples have compressed in equities, I mean, you're talking about going from 20 times forward earnings to 16 times conservatively in a, in a relatively short period of time, right? Um, we would think over the next several weeks into year end, equities will, will regain some of their recent losses. Yeah. Um, high yield will stabilize. Uh, yields will work their way higher. But over the next several years, you're going to have yeah. a push and pull of, of slower economic growth, but still strong enough to drive earnings higher and tighter monetary policy, not only in the U.S., but overseas. So there is a very, uh, you know, if you look at the distribution of outcomes, a significant part of it or, or percent of it does uh, argue for flattish markets where better economy, better earnings are offset by tighter monetary policy, which is really similar to the, you know, the whole 14-15 environment and into early 16, where the concern was very different at that time. It was more about the collapse in energy and the potential for a hard landing in China. So, yeah. they're, 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 you know, we'd probably say a third to 40 percent of the outcomes, very simplistically, would dictate another flattish equity market last year. And then, of course, as you move further and further through a cycle, the tails get fatter and fatter on both extremes. Can I ask my pointless question of the morning? Please. I'm, I'm already one up on you, but go ahead. Okay. If the global economy had a central bank, would it cut, hold, or hike at its next meeting? What would it do, Troy? It's a global. That's a great question. I think it would hold right now. I mean, if you think of what's going on in China, you think meaning slower economy, obviously struggling yeah. with trade, struggling with transitioning from their manufacturing export-oriented economy to a consumption economy. That would argue for holding, maybe even cutting. You look at Europe, certainly holding, even though the inflation data is strong, obviously growth momentum slowed dramatically. And the, the one yeah. standout is still the U.S., but the U.S. obviously will slow down from its Q2 number. Yeah. It already has. And we're looking more like 2.5% growth right. next year as opposed to 3% plus. So I think global central bank right now, if you, if you look at all the factors, would certainly hold going into the next meeting. Okay. But as you guys know, the Fed is the central bank of the U.S., not the world. <laughs> Troy Gaski, thank you so much for Skybridge. Right now is the interview of the day. If you are curious about this strange space called high yield and what it means for the equity markets, we are thrilled to bring you Margie Patel of Wells Fargo Asset Management, who's done this through a few cycles. Margie, where are we in the high yield cycle right now? Are we still issuing tons of paper? No, this has been a uh, unusual year. The new issue supply is down about 30% from where it's been for the last half dozen years, which were all record-breaking. So it's, it's unusual, rather low. A lot of that demand has gone into the loan market. Well, into the loan market, and everybody yep. focused on loan. Explain to me and explain to my listeners why loans are different than notes or bonds that are high-yield. Well, loans, first of all, are not a security. It's like buying a house, effectively. So there's a lot less liquidity than there is with bonds, and the settlement process can take longer than a security. Uh, instead of a couple days, it could take five days, or it could take several weeks to settle. 
and also because there are fewer people who are buyers of loans, the market is not as broad as the as the bond market. If that's the case, and we take it that it is, do you believe that there are many investors who have put their money and their faith in loans and leveraged loans but don't know the consequences or potential complications that you just described? Yes, because I think when people think of loans, they tend to think of bank loans, meaning they're very, very safe. They tend to think that they're a defense against rising interest rates because the coupon rate will adjust if interest rates go up. But what they forget about is the risk to principal which is always uh, in any bond. It's also in any loans. With so many lower-quality loans, uh, there's a greater risk to principal than there's been in previous years with loans. Simply, there are so many loans uh, layered over a capital structure. The recovery value, if companies fail, will be less than what you've experienced in previous cycles. The desire for these loans is backed by low interest rates for bonds. Would that be accurate? Yes, and also uh, people who are afraid of rising rates think that loans are very attractive. Um, Do you however, agree? And, uh, well, no, because number one, a lot of the new issuance of loans has been in the, the <clears throat> lower part of the quality market. In other yeah. words, more marginal issues. Previously, they would have come to the high yield market yeah. and created defaults, but uh, so that has left high yield a little bit insulated yeah. from some of the poor issuers. Margie, in the first week of November 1987, this is before Margie, you were in the industry. <laughs> uh, we all learned about a thing called portfolio insurance. Are these loans the new portfolio insurance? No, I think it's just uh, loans are uh, responding to what the market has demanded. The market wants more loans because people... Oh, come on, Margie, stop. The market wants more yield. It's always the same. If I can get 30 more basis points, I'll be happy, right? Every cycle's like that, isn't it? Yes, but loans pay you less yield than bonds. Okay. That's the issue. So you trade that off because you think your your principal is better protected uh, either in default or in rising rates. And the answer is, well, not necessarily. It depends on the underlying quality. What you just heard there, folks, ta- write it down, tattoo it to your brain. And this conversation, I don't know when, Pim, six months, one year, two years, three years from now, Margie Patel will look like a genius. I think she looks like a genius now. She does, but yeah. even more so. What you just heard there. The loan market right now is growing because, as you describe, low interest rates make it unappealing for investors to own traditional bonds or even high-yield debt. When, when the Federal Reserve continue, well, I should say the Federal Reserve has said that it will raise interest rates, what will happen to the value of those loans? Again, it goes back to the quality of the issuer. Better quality loans will hold their value near par. They always basically trade more or less in par. You never really have a chance for capital mm-hmm. appreciation. Lower quality loans um, will you know, hit the wall and, and default. And what percent that will be, we'll have right. to see. How do you respond, Margie? One final question. How do you respond to uh, this idea that, that equity guys should follow your world of high yield and they will glean signals from high yield that will help them with their belief in equities. Do you buy the linkage? It used to prevail. It doesn't anymore. I don't look for any class signaling. 
I think high yield reflects a good economy, low defaults, yeah. a Fed that's on path for gradual increases. Hugely valuable. Margie Patel, thank you so much today with Wells Fargo Asset Manager. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.